So as we get started this weekend, I want to take a moment and have a word for a prayer for the the families that just were devastated uh, last week in Texas. You know, the world we live in is just just crazy, isn't it, sometimes? It's so offended by little things. People say the littlest things and everybody's all offended. And it's some of the most violent things that we've ever seen in our lives. We're easily offended and we're really violent. And we're America, aren't we? <laughs> um, I want to pray for those families. And uh, you know what? Uh, we try to take steps to, to make sure that our kids are safe here and that when we worship we're safe. But you know, in the end... We do the best we can, but we're in God's hands. But uh, we want to pray for them right now. Let's take a moment and do that. So, Father, we just can't imagine what it was like last week as people gathered to worship you and were gunned down. We can't imagine the losses that people are experiencing even today and and. Those who have been wounded are are still in the hospital and those who are gone, now there is just one funeral after another. It's unbelievable. It's heart-wrenching. It's America. We pray for your, your help in this time of trouble. We pray for your comfort and encouragement. We thank you that these people were people of faith. Because they have a hope that goes beyond this life. But we pray just for today and tomorrow and the next few days that you would just bring them through this difficult time. We pray, Father, that you would encourage them and help them and meet every one of their needs with your vast grace and mercy and the ability that you have to reach out to their hurting hearts. Just Be very close to them, Father, during this time. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want you to do is take take the chair Bible out for a minute, just as an experiment. Would you do that for me? And uh, I want to have you do something real quick for me while I wipe my eyes. Turn to Genesis chapter 50, because I want to make a point. If you go to Genesis chapter 50, at the end of the chapter, and that'll be on page 44, you see Genesis chapter 50, verse 28, and it says, So Joseph died at an age of 110. After that, they embalmed him, and he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, when you read Uh, Exodus chapter 1, it says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Now, we're not going to go through the names. From the end of Genesis 50 to the beginning of Exodus 1, there's 400 years. So think back in America's history, 400 years. Right? So it's 20... 17. So 1617, right? Anybody remember anything about 1617? Probably not. 
Unless you're a history teacher, right? So that's how much time is gone. And sometimes when you read the Bible, you don't realize how much time has transpired from one book to another. But there's a couple other things that are going on here. When we leave Jacob's family, and Jacob is the nation of Israel because his sons were the 12 tribes of Israel, Jacob's sons. There was about 70 people in the family that went to Egypt. They were guests of Pharaoh. They were, they were taken care of. They were cared for. 400 years goes by, and there's a different, obviously, different Egyptian Pharaoh. And he does not know Jacob. He does not know Israel. The nation of Israel has probably grown to over a million, probably more than a million people. And so he's concerned because they are becoming a force that may become uncontrollable. They are no longer guests. They are now slaves. Okay, so look at uh, in Exodus 1, 8, 9, it says this. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. You see the problem here. They're no longer favored. They're no longer a small group. They're, They're large. They're not favored. In fact, they're slaves. So he does two things, two things to try to manage this sizable population that he has within Egypt. He does two things. The first thing he does is he begins to put the screws down on them as slaves. He makes their work harder and harder and harder. Secondly, he instructs the midwives who helped in the birth of the Hebrew children to make sure that there would be no more male children born in Egypt. So they were told, if you discover it's a boy, you need to kill it or make sure it doesn't live. Essentially, that's what goes on. So uh, if they're girls, fine, they can, but no boys, no more boys. There'll be no more Hebrew boys. All right, so... These midwives are interesting. I think they're God-fearers because they're not willing to do that. And so when a boy is born, they let it be born, and they make excuses. They say, well, these Hebrew women, they give birth so fast, before we even get there, the baby's born, you know. And so they make excuses. One of the babies born during this time where there's this death sentence on all newborn baby boys is Moses. We want to look at Moses this weekend. So uh, turn in your Bibles now to the New Testament. And if you're using the chair Bible, page 975. And we're going to start reading at verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, 23. uh, And I'm going to start reading page 975. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born Because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were afraid of the king's edict. The king's edict was that if a child was born uh, from zero to three, he was to die. Can you remember someone else that that happened to? Well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Notice the next verse. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
He chose to be mistreated along with the people of Israel or people of God rather than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover, the application of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. When the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. The question I want to answer tonight is, how do you withstand the pressure of life? How do you withstand the pressure of life? I think we all have pressure. I think we all have challenges. So what can we learn from Moses? Because if you think about it, Moses was under quite a bit of pressure. Here's three things we can do. The first one is, we need to remember that God uses your past to prepare you for your future. You know, there are times, maybe, and I was one, where there were a lot of uh, little things in my, my past that I just felt like, what a waste. What a waste. And then I saw what God could do through those times. Uh, jump back to Exodus chapter 2, page 45. We're going to see that uh, God is going to use the past of Moses to prepare him for his future. Uh, Exodus 2, verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, uh, took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she, uh, when she saw that she had, was, he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could not hide him no longer, she took... Uh, <clears throat> For him, a basket made of bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen and uh, bitumen and pitch, a tar basically. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. So she puts this baby in this little basket, and she tells her daughter to keep an eye on it. Right, and and, and lo and behold. Who is there by the river that day bathing? Well, it's Pharaoh's daughter with her servants. And they immediately, she sees the basket. Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket. And Miriam, the older sister of Moses, who is watching the basket, sees the, they grab and bring the, the basket there. And uh, the Pharaoh's daughter basically is uh, uh, falls in love with the, the, the baby. And Miriam goes to... Uh, the Pharaoh's daughter and says, you need somebody to raise this baby until he's weaned, until he's old enough. And so she, her, you know, Moses' sister Miriam says, I know just the person we could get. And so uh, the Pharaoh's daughter says, well, go get that person. And so what, what does she do? She go gets her mom and uh, Miriam goes, gets a, uh, Jacobet, Jacobet, uh, that's Moses' mother, and Pharaoh's daughter says, you take care of this child and raise him and wean him and care for him uh, until it's, he's old enough to enter into the palace. And I'll pay you. <laughs> so that's a pretty good deal. Get paid to raise your own child. 
And she did. So um, Jacob had uh, raises Moses until he's probably, scholars believe, somewhere between three, four, five years old. Um, and I believe those were crucial years. Those, years. those were huge years. Because those were the years where Moses got his ethnic and spiritual underpinning, his heritage. Um, God would use those seeds that his mother was planting in his heart. And they would be vital and terribly important. So she planted these seeds very early to guide him the rest of his life. And I want to ask you as a parent, uh, what seeds are you planting There's a lot of seeds that you can plant, but I'm asking you, what seeds are you planting in this in the hearts of your children? What are what are the best seeds to plant on any given weekend in the tri-state area? We see parents planting seeds in their children. There are seeds for participation in sports, participation in the arts, clubs, clubs. there's all sorts of things going on. There were things uh, when I was here 19 years ago that just weren't happening on the weekends, specifically even on Sunday. But nowadays, it, uh, I, before I leave sometimes my house when I'm over by senior high school, um, and I'm here early, I'm hearing whistles on the football field, and I see little kids out there playing football. And I'm thinking, okay, um, I see that. But... What spiritual seeds are you planting in the life of your children? Now, my garden this year was horrible. Absolutely horrible. My beans were horrible. My, my tomatoes were horrible. My corn, ugh, it was horrible, right? I, in fact, I didn't have anything grow. You know why? Because I didn't plant anything. I didn't have a garden. And so it shouldn't be surprising that I didn't have anything grow in my garden that I didn't plant. I had weeds, I had grass, but I didn't have a garden. And there's people, there's parents that say, I wonder why my teenagers aren't spiritually alert. Why are their hearts hard towards God and towards Jesus? I can't understand it. And I say, gee, that's strange. They were at every football practice. No. Some of you are going, Pastor, you moved to, from, from preaching to meddling now. And I am. Because it seems to me every other extracurricular activity is now today trumping being together in church, spending time together as a family, praying before meals, And we wonder why our kids grow up and they have no use of God. I'm concerned about the next few generations. I'm concerned that we're not planting the seeds in their little hearts. I'm concerned that there's a generation of kids that are going to grow up and say, we don't need God. And their lives are going to be really, really troubled. See, what I'm saying is this. If you're not planting spiritual seeds now, don't be shocked to see no signs of spiritual life when they're older. And I believe that's why the writer of Proverbs says, rightly, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart. So if you train your child up 
to go to be in anything else but be part of a church community on a weekend, they'll grow up to do that. When you teach them to grow up to be part of a church community and a priority thing on the weekend, I think you'll see they're more likely to choose that. And I don't believe Proverbs are promises, but they're a pattern for life. And so if you have a pattern where you're not planting spiritual seeds, don't be surprised when you realize we don't have a very good crop. Notice what happened, though. When our, go back to our story, uh, Gen, uh, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, so many years have gone by, He's now been raised by his mother, but then he's been raised in the palace. And he's been educated in the palace of Egypt. Probably one of the most powerful nations uh, in the world at that time. And so uh, he's had his education. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. It's the people of Israel. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Notice he used that phrase twice. His people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. It meant he killed him, murdered him. And when he went out the next day, <coughs> behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man who, in the wrong, why did you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, He sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. So many years have gone by. Moses is now a grown man, and he sees these two Hebrews fighting. He breaks, or he sees first this this, uh, Hebrew taskmaster, slave master, beating. uh, 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 He's still a Hebrew at heart. These seeds that his mother has put into him are growing to a crop. And he sees this, and so he, he does the wrong thing. He kills this, this Egyptian taskmaster and buries him under the sand. The next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting each other, and he takes the one to task who's at fault, and immediately he knows that their people know what I did. Remember, it says he looked this way and that way. No one saw what I did. You know, that's the way sin works. Sin is one of those things nobody will know. It'll never find out. Well, it was found out. And uh, he, uh, he was aware, Moses was aware, that he had to get out of Egypt because his life was in jeopardy. The Pharaoh found out. So Moses is at a place, and, and notice he leaves, and it says he, he leaves Egypt, and he's sitting by a well. He is now not an Egyptian. He's not welcome there. But he also doesn't welcome by his Hebrew brothers, is he? He is a man without a country. He is alone. Um, so he flees from Egypt, and he spends the ne- he's going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness, tending sheep, shepherding sheep. And some people will say, what a waste. What a waste. 40 years, he's going to spend 40 years just managing sheep. What good could that possibly be? Well, he will be leading some sheep in the wilderness called the nation of Israel shortly. And so that is good training for him. But notice 
God can take the past and prepare us for the future if we'll let him. So all those things that he learned from his mom, all those things he learned in Egypt on the training he got there, the time that he spent out in the wilderness, these are all going to come together in Moses. And Moses is going to be one of the greatest leaders the nation of Israel has ever known. And I have personally marveled at sometimes in my life where God has taken certain little weavings in my life and pulled them together for a moment. And it's almost like he's saying to me, Matt, I'll bet you never thought that was going to be helpful. But oh, yes, it was. Because God can take our past and use it for the next step of his plan. So that's the first lesson. Secondly, we need to make sure that the only thing that we're living for is eternal. Somebody has well said, and I think it's true, you're only as vulnerable as the thing you love the most. You're only as vulnerable as the thing you love the most. Why? Because when that thing is taken, your life will fall apart. Notice what it says about Moses. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. See, Moses had it all. He was raised in in a royal house, in a royal palace, yet the seeds of his mother's planted in his young heart as a child still were taking root and were growing. And, And they were directing his identity with his children. And God used his education, his training, and his leadership to lead his people. But Moses was able to become one of the greatest leaders. Why? Because he had an eternal perspective. He had an eternal perspective. And we've talked about that in the past. So the question I want to ask you is this. What is the one thing that you're living for? What is the one thing you're living for? That is, the, that is the thing that is defining and directing your life right now. Whatever that is. Whatever that one thing is. And when that one thing is threatened or taken away, you'll find your life will become begin to unravel. It just will. So what is that one thing? Because if that one thing is here and now, if it's a, a, a being part of a family, if it's a job, if it's being successful, if it's having good health... If, Whatever it is, if it's the thing, when you lose that one thing, your life will become unraveling. Moses, it says, had an eternal perspective. And he held that eternal perspective. And it's really important. So God can use the past to prepare us for the future. And 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 just like we said with Abraham, uh, little steps each Each event in his life was a step, and it wasn't growth like this. It was more kind of up and down, and it was, you know, but he was becoming the leader that God wanted him to be. But he also had an eternal perspective. He realized that he had it all. I mean, he could have sat back, put his feet up in Egypt, and he's everything's good, right? He had everything the world could offer him. But he didn't but he wanted more. He 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 had something within his heart that said, My life is bigger than that. And he saw eternity. And I believe that's why God called him 40 years later at a burning bush. The third thing we find is when confronted with impending disaster, obey anyway. 
when things probably aren't going to work out well for you, because isn't that where the rub comes in for many of us? When we're pinched, when we come to a, at the end, when we come to a difficult time, we generally punt and say, it's not going to work out. I think I'll punt. I think I'll take a shortcut. I think I'll lie. I think I'll cheat. I think I'll do this. And, and, and what I'm saying here is when you're confronting, confronted with impending disaster, obey God anyway. Trust Him. Moses, we're going to see, is 80 years old now. And, and God meets him at a bush, a burning bush. And he, 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 God says to him, Moses, you're going to be my leader. I want you to go down to Egypt and I want you to tell the Pharaoh, let my people go. God has prepared him, groomed him, brought him to this place. And Moses says, you've got the wrong person. It can't possibly be me. And God says, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> so Moses goes down there and you can read about it in the early chapters of Exodus where where there's all these different plagues and different signs. The, the final sign was the death of the firstborn. The Passover. But Pharaoh pursues Moses. So so finally, finally, uh, uh, Moses comes to uh, Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, okay, after the Passover, he says, okay, you can go because the firstborn... His firstborn was dead. And so Moses and the nation of Israel leave Egypt, right? And they come to the Red Sea. The edge of the Red Sea. So they, they, they have over a million people at the edge of the Red Sea. And they have be, and so this happened over and over through the plagues. Pharaoh basically comes to a place and says, you know what? I don't want to lose them. I, I'm going to I'm going to bring them back, and so he sends his his army out after them. So they're between a rock and a hard place. They they, they can't cross, and they have an army pursuing them. Right? That's what they have going on. They are unarmed, and they have one of the greatest armies fast approaching them. And the question is, what will they do? Well, we're told in, in Exodus chapter 14. Look at that. That's on page 55. Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people. Now, again, get the picture in your mind. You are the nation of Israel. You have no weapons. You are not warriors. You are in front of the, the Red Sea and you have the Egyptian army pursuing you. You could see the dust. You can see them approaching you. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Now, that's there's so much in that verse. We don't really have time to go into it. But the point I want you to see is Moses didn't just wake up one day and become this great man of faith. He is 80 years old now. He has had highs and lows. He has won and he has lost. He has shown faith and he has failed. 
But here he is at a key moment before an, a, a barrier that he has no idea how in the world God is going to free his people. He has no idea. So he does the most logical thing you could ever do. When faced with the impossible, he faithfully takes a step into the Red Sea. And the waters part. And it says, if you read through that passage, it says the people cross the Red Sea on dry land. I don't know how he did it. I don't know how he did it. But he did it. Of course, the Egyptians pursued them, you know, but it says that once they pursued them and the Israelites, the Hebrew people were all on the other side, the waters converged on them and they all drowned in the Red Sea. By the way, you can read a couple of the Psalms that talk about that victory. Probably written by Moses. See, this wasn't his first step. God had spent years preparing Moses for this step. Each step in his life was a bigger step. Each step prepared him for this giant step. What, what Moses remembered was he could look back on God's faithfulness in his life. And he realized that God had always been faithful and God had called him to this place. And he realized that this was a hurdle that only God could do. And, and he said, you know, this is it. This Unless God intervenes, I don't know what's going to happen. But here's the thing. God did intervene. He remembered who God was. He remembered God's power. He was fully fixed on the wisdom and power of God. So the principle is this. When, you're, when your obedience looks like it's leading to disaster, you obey anyway. When your obedience looks like it might not work out for you, you obey anyways. You don't punt. You don't lie. You don't cheat. Moses persevered because he saw him who was invisible. He was able to see the one who isn't seen. Right? He trusted God. Now, we could conclude and say, don't be like, uh, be like Moses. Be like Moses. Trust like Moses. Have faith like Moses. You say, well, aren't we learning about these people and our faith should look like theirs? Yeah, but I want to just say to you, don't be like Moses. What did Moses do, by the way? He looked to God. And and, and we do the same thing, but we don't have to look to God. We, We look to Jesus, right? Because we know more. We see more than Moses. More has been revealed to us than Moses. Like, for instance... Moses had to flee the nation of Egypt, right? He had to flee his home, right? Uh, Jesus left his throne in heaven, right? Moses was pursued by the Pharaoh of Egypt, seeking to kill him. Jesus, when he was just a baby, was sought by Herod when his parents took him to Egypt because he wanted to kill him. Moses was rejected by his Hebrew brothers, His own people rejected him. What does it say about Jesus? He came into his own, and his own received him not. But there's the best part of that verse. But to those who received him, he gave the power to become the sons and daughters of God. Moses was given a mission to lead God's people out of Egypt into a promised land. Jesus 
was on a mission to lead his people out of sin into a heavenly city. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can be also the heavenly city. We read about it in the book of Revelation. Moses risked his life to save his people, and Jesus gave his life to save his people. So don't be like Moses. Look to Jesus. Because when we look to Jesus, we have the power and we have the example to have faith like Moses. See, we see more than Moses sees. We have a God who has been faithful in the past. So, some of you look back at your past and say, God could never use those terrible things that have happened in my life. Don't be so sure. Make sure that the one thing in your life is the most important thing. Make sure it's eternal. Make sure it's Him. And then, and then finally, don't, don't try to, on your own, in your own power and your own ability to have more faith or to hunker up more faith. Or, don't, don't do that. Look to Jesus, and He will give you not just the ability, but the desire to walk by faith. Amen? Stand with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the example of Moses. Thank you for Jesus, who is more than an example. He is our Savior. He is the one who has led us out of the land of sin and death into the land of life and hope and promise. Thank you, Father, that He didn't just offer His life. He gave His life. Thank you that He didn't have to be uh, coerced. He willingly did it. Father, may we look to Jesus and find not just the example of faith, but the help, the hope, and the power to demonstrate faith. Because we see more than Moses saw. Thank you for revealing yourself to each and every one of us. Thank you for giving us your Holy Spirit who witnesses within us your power and presence. We give you thanks. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.